0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going to go ahead and look at God's Word together after being in the book of Titus. I'm going to embark on a new, about a six week series on some practical issues relative to church life, calling it Life in the Body. So that's what we're going to begin with today after Resurrection Sunday last week. Uh, As I said, we spent. A little less, I think, than a year in the book of Titus. It's very helpful for our church in that little book. And before we begin another book in the New Testament, studying the New Covenant, that's why God gave us the New Testament. It's called the New Covenant, it fulfills the Old Testament, and that's why the church should be spending their time in the New Testament preaching regularly because it is the fulfillment of Christ's coming, His person, His death and resurrection. Before we do that, I thought it would be helpful to just kind of refocus on some priorities among church life, hence the title, um, Life in the Body, that I want to be going over in the next six weeks. Practical issues, uh, as I was thinking and praying about, okay, what well, if I had a few weeks, what would I like to emphasize? And it's pretty easy I thought about church life and things we need to be, is that me buzzing? Oops, sorry, there it is. I don't know if that's me buzzing. Testing, we'll let Donna fix that if... It might be, uh... okay, thank you, Donna. Um, So, but it was pretty easy to just uh, come up with a few topics that we just need to address. Just about every one of these topics has been addressed at some point in the last seven years, but these are themes that need to be addressed in the life of a Christian and a church, actually frequently and more frequently than every seven years. And since a couple of these things, which we talked about early on, some new folks have come and the. Personality and demographics. Actually, this church has changed a little bit, and so many of you have never heard these addressed from our pulpit. So uh, they all address family life and living together and honoring God as we corporately uh, meet together in a local fellowship here at Grace Bible Fellowship. So the first topic that I want to address today in Life in the Body was conflict resolution. And so that's what I'm calling it conflict resolution. From selected passages, We'll spend some time looking at Matthew 18, if you want to have your finger there. But we'll also be looking at other passages as well. Talking about church life, you've got to talk about conflict at some point. Actually, it's inevitable. Conflict. Conflict, to some people, it's a bad word. It's a scary word. Some people don't know what to do with it or how to deal with it. That's why I want to talk about it in just a summary, distilled fashion this morning conflict is so important 25 years ago when I thought about becoming a pastor and an elder in a church I think if you were to ask me back then what is your job description going to be as a pastor and elder I think it'd be a little different than what I would say today 25 years later I would have said uh, oh I get to preach and teach and study for 40 hours a week and nobody bothers me Ooh, I'm glad you're laughing <laughs> It's a pretty pretty naive Uh, anyway not reality job description but preaching and teaching absolutely and studying absolutely is a priority that's one of the main priorities and responsibilities of a pastor and teacher and elder but it's more than that it's overseeing and managing the body it's like a big family that's not easy to do so overseeing also leading praying for and providing vision and direction and leading and part of leading, and overseeing is also protecting the sheep in physical ways and also with respect to truth and also in practical matters. So the job description really is growing. And these are all right in the Bible describing the job description of a pastor and elder in a church. So uh, many facets to it. One that I probably wouldn't have thought of as much 20, 25 years ago was uh, dealing and managing conflict in the church among the body. That just wasn't on the radar, wasn't a priority, didn't really have a whole lot of experience in it. But after doing it for years and in church life for now decades, even at Grace Bible Fellowship, GBF for going on seven years, I think all of our elders would agree that, wow, one of the main things we are responsible for doing as elders is providing conflict management and directing and spearheading and educating on conflict resolution among the members of our church, among our own sheep. Because inevitably where you have people together, you have sinners together rubbing shoulders and inevitably you have what? You have conflict, right? So it's very idealistic and unrealistic and does not reflect uh, what the Bible says to think that, oh, I just want to go to church where there's no conflict. Well, then I can't think of a church that exists like that, or at least a good real one. Maybe you're the only member. Um, That's just not reality. And we know that from Scripture. Conflict is everywhere. It's a reality. It needs to be dealt with. It's a part of human life. Um, The fact that we are sinners makes conflict inevitable. So you're not going to find a church that doesn't have conflict. You're not going to find a family that doesn't have conflict. You're not going to find a marriage that doesn't have conflict. You're not going to find a work environment that doesn't have conflict. You're not going to find any social gathering that doesn't have conflict as one of its ancillary or sometimes even main components and realities of ongoing life why because we are sinful and then also in a church context the reason you always have conflict not only because sinners are trying to interact and interface with each other but also truth plays a part in conflict it's not just sin it's truth if you have the naive view that well it's only the super spiritual that never have conflict wrong answer uh, think of the Apostle Paul. Did he ever have conflict? Absolutely. He wrote 13 epistles, and every one of the main themes of his 13 epistles had to do with addressing conflict and trying to resolve conflict. Every single one of them. So the Apostle Paul dealt with conflict all the time, and he was pretty super spiritual. Godly, godly man. The apostles themselves, they were involved in conflict all the time, but they were godly saints. Moses, godly man, he had to deal with conflict, especially going through the desert with all 2 million Jews who were with him because of sin and also because truth plays into that, the conflict scenario. And then just the greatest example of all would be Jesus, who is truth incarnate, godliness incarnate. Jesus was without sin. Yet was Jesus ever involved in conflict? Uh, yeah. Read the Gospel of John and you will find, if you look for it carefully... All twenty one chapters of the Gospel of John for the most part has Jesus engaged or involved in some conflict with somebody. It's the gospel of evangelism and the gospel gospel of John, but it's also a gospel delineating and showcasing Jesus in conflict and butting heads continuously with the Jewish leadership. And it got heated, it got ugly, it got vicious. But Jesus was in conflict. So godliness, the barometer for godliness isn't whether you have uh, conflict or not. It's not the absence of conflict. It's how you deal with conflict. It's your perspective regarding conflict and how you manage it and deal with it in a biblical and godly way. So maybe you have a marriage and you have conflict in your marriage. The barometer for gauging your marriage isn't, oh, we never have any conflict. We never disagree and we never refrain from arguing or have conflict. Isn't our marriage wonderful? I'd say problem no. Um, probably I've seen marriages like that where people married for 30 years, they just don't talk to each other. There's no conflict because there's no communication. They've just shut down. They just kind of coexist. So that's not necessarily a mark of godliness. Conflict is a reality. And we have to deal with it in a biblical way. And so probably right now, you don't need to raise your hand or say, yeah, that's me. But if you were just to evaluate your own life, I would say that most of us, or you, you're in conflict with somebody right now. In your life, if you think about it, whether it's a colleague at work, your boss, a relative, your spouse, a family member, one of your kids, one of your parents, one of your in-laws, somebody at church, I can almost guarantee it. You've got conflict going on somewhere that needs a biblical perspective and hopefully godly resolution or at least godly management. And so that's kind of the goal today. So we'll breeze through this. This is high level. This is just a survey we're not going to go into great detail, but just good, important reminders because we need to do this. We need to approach conflict head on. Before I jump into point number one, ask this question, and before I answer it, I want you to think for about 10 seconds of what you think the answer might be. And the question is, why, why is there conflict? Why does conflict arise? Why do people get into conflict? Think about that. What would your answer be if I gave you, asked you to write the answers down? Why does conflict arise? Why is there conflict between two parties? What is the source of it? Well, I came up with three possible answers. Why is there conflict among people in two parties? Well, one possibility is that there's simply just misunderstanding on the part of the two parties, right? Happens all the time. There's a misunderstanding, there's a lack of communication, there's wrong assumptions, there's misinformation. And then when those two parties come together and they talk it through, they realize, oh, wow, that was just a misunderstanding. How silly, how needless that our conflict was. So that's a possibility. That happens frequently. Or maybe you only have one side of the story. Um, But regardless, you have wrong thinking. And your thinking needs to be addressed, changed, informed, uh, brought into line with truth. So that's, the solu- that's always the solution. Our thinking needs to be addressed and brought up to speed with truth. So people get into conflict through misunderstanding. Number two, people could be in conflict because one party may be in sin. One party might be in sin and the other party is not in sin. One party is uh, in the wrong and the other party might not be in the wrong. So just because two parties are in conflict, it doesn't mean both parties are guilty. One party may very well be sinful acting wrong, thinking wrong, behaving wrong. And they're really the source of conflict. That's, that would be true of Jesus. He was never wrong, he never sinned, but he was in conflict all the time. And why was he in conflict all the time? Well, because the party he was dealing with and engaging with, the unbelieving Jews or whoever it was that he was in conflict with, they were in the wrong, they were sinful, they had the wrong perspective, they had the wrong heart attitude, and as a result, there couldn't be peace. So Jesus is the prime example In that scenario. The third scenario of why there's conflict among two parties is that both parties could be in sin. Both parties could be in the wrong. Many times this happens, like in a marriage relationship, because of wrong and bad attitudes. And both parties need an adjustment and a revelation of truth and humbling, and then they can come together for peace. So, those are just, by way of summary, three scenarios to keep in mind about why there might be conflict. In our point, we're zeroing in on conflict in the church among. The sheep at the same local Christian church. So let's go ahead and look at some biblical principles of dealing with and managing conflict. And point number one is, and this is just a reality check, all Christians and all churches will have conflict. All Christians and all churches will have conflict. I already gave examples of Paul and Jesus. I do want to give a specific, and this is uh, one of the most stark examples. I do I want you to go to Acts chapter fourteen. And I look we're gonna look at one verse in Acts fifteen. All Christians, including the great apostle Paul, and all churches, every church Paul pastored and planted, by the way, will have conflict. And for Paul it was every one of them. Uh, So Paul goes on his first missionary journey. He's been saved. He goes on his first short missionary journey. He goes around. He's preaching the gospel. He's even planting a few churches. Uh, He's got a couple of partners with him. Barnabas is one of them. Barnabas was kind of a mentor, older man, and they got along well, worked together well in ministry, and they brought, no doubt, others on their team, and one of the others that they brought on their missionary team as they were doing their first missionary trip you had uh, the Apostle Paul, you had Barnabas, and then a younger disciple named Mark or John Mark. And as they're going around, a very dangerous trip that they're taking, going from city to city and traveling over dangerous waters and at night and just the conditions. So this was a risky and dangerous venture, and they needed to p- depend upon one another and protect and provide for one another. And at some point during this very difficult, arduous missionary trip, uh, John Mark bailed on the missionary team and just apparently got up and left, and really abandoned his team, putting them at risk in the middle of the missionary trip. That's very dangerous. That was not good of John Mark to do. Well, Paul and Barnabas and his team, they continued on anyway. They had to. They had a calling from God. But when that first missionary trip was over, they come back to headquarters, which was in Antioch, and that brings us to chapter 14, and then uh, the Apostle Paul... Uh, has a rest, but he tells uh, the church how wonderful it was and the great work that God was doing and that Gentiles were being saved and some people were embracing the Scripture and uh, believing. And so they give a report to the church. Uh, then look at Acts chapter 15. Uh, starting at verse 1, it says, "...some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved." And when Paul and Barnabas had uh, great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem. So Paul and Barnabas get back from their missionary trip. They're having a slideshow of of the mission trip, of where they were and saying, look at all these Gentiles getting saved. And apparently some professing uh, Jewish believers are in the congregation. They're watching the slideshow and they don't like Gentiles for the most part. And uh, they're the party of the Pharisees and the circumcision. And apparently they got a little disgruntled and they start talking behind Paul and Barnabas' back and saying, hey, what do you mean Gentiles are getting saved? You're not making them get circumcised. What, they need to fulfill the law of Moses before they can be Christians. And so they start spreading this in the church at Antioch. They're undermining Paul and Barnabas's work. And as a result, when they come together, uh, Paul hears of it. It's creating waves in the church. And it says in verse 2 that Paul and Barnabas had great dissension, great Dissension and debate with these fellow believers, professing believers in their local church. Great dissension, not just dissension, great dissension, tumultuous. It got such a heated fever pitch that everybody probably knew about it. Wow, our pastor, the apostle Paul and Bar, they're, they're in an argument in a heated uh, display with these other Christian teachers or ministers in the church. Yikes! I didn't know Christians fought and argued. I didn't know pastors get in conflict. You can imagine what they're thinking. Great dissension. I can't emphasize the terminology enough. Well, it, re- it was a crisis. They couldn't resolve it among themselves. This needed to be resolved by intervention by the other apostles. So they go to Jerusalem. Man, we've got to settle this. We've got to take the gloves off, go up there to Jerusalem, lay this before the apostle Peter and the other apostles, and resolve this issue. That's how bad it got. So they do. They have the Jerusalem council and then Peter and James and they spent a lot of time. Chapter 15, verse seven says when they got there among the apostles and everybody shared their information, it says there was much debate. That means it went on for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours without resolution, without clarity and probably with much dissension and heat and emotion. Finally, God intervened, gave the apostles wisdom, gave Peter and James and John clarity. And then Peter issued that decree, the statement of the apostles and settled the issue. At the Jerusalem Council, it was like, whoo, praise God. So that was an example of conflict among the apostles in the church. Then uh, just as they're taking a sigh of relief and saying, yippee, and they're drinking their Mountain Dew before they go off to the next missionary trip, Paul and uh, Barnabas and cheers. Off oh, we go, hey, Barnabas, let's go back to all those churches that we planted and encourage the young leadership and the disciples and maybe God will have us plant more churches. Does not sound like a great a great idea? And Barnabas says, yeah, absolutely, let's do it. Okay, let's in there packing up. And Okay, let's go, John Mark, says Barnabas. And Paul says, no way. You mean that guy that bailed on us? No, I don't want John Mark to go. And Barnabas said, well, I, I want him to go. And then Paul said, no, well, I don't want him to go. And then Barnabas said, well, I want him to go. And then it got higher and higher and hotter and hotter and hotter. And a total disagreement to the point that verse 39 in Acts 15, it says, And there arose such a sharp disagreement, a bitter disagreement, a heated disagreement between Paul and Barnabas." Just down, it separated them as partners in ministry and maybe temporarily even as intimate friends at that point. In other words, they got to an impasse and they realized, you know what, this isn't going to be resolved. There is no way I'm taking John Mark on another trip. He risked everything. He made us vulnerable. I am not going to do it. I don't care if you're older than me, Barnabas. And Barnabas is saying, no, you you don't have grace, Paul. God can use him. He made a mistake. Everybody makes mistakes. You made a mistake. Well, there was no resolution in this verse at this time. So it says that they split. They separated. Boom. What's kind of interesting God doesn't tell us in this passage who is at fault. I've heard sermons preached that Paul was correct, and others say, no, Barnabas was correct. And I'm saying, well, I don't see it here. The gavel is not slammed by God and said one or the other was at fault. What we do know is that Barnabas decided, okay, fine, uh, I'll go with John Mark. And Paul says, fine, then I'm taking Silas with me and some other guys, and we're going to go back to the churches and encourage them. And then Barnabas said, okay, fine, I'm taking John Mark, and we're going to go over to uh, Cyrus and other places. Uh, to preach the gospel and then they had a parting this was early on in paul's ministry very early on in his ministry and we don't know what kind of correspondence paul and barnabas had from that point on because they were always on the road separated by distance and travel and ministry this was not resolved in this situation but God works all things together for good. And what does God do when he takes two of the strongest, greatest, most high-profile leaders in the early church who have a disagreement and a dispute and can't get along? God, who does all things and works that all together for good, he takes one missionary team and he says, poof, now we have two. He made two effective missionary teams headed by Barnabas and one... By Paul. But this is probably one of the most poignant, um, sharpest disagreements between two respectable Christians in the New Testament. To accentuate and, and point out the reality we're trying to get at. That conflict is a reality in the church. The question is, how are we managing it? So all Christians and all churches will have conflict. Point number two. Satan uses conflict to attack the body of Christ. We know this from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis in chapter 3, what is Satan doing? He's trying to create conflict between God and Adam and Eve. And then Satan's trying to create conflict between uh, Adam and Eve. And Satan's trying to create, that's his job. That is his name. Satan and devil. The opposer and the diabolical one. Those are the ingredients for conflict between two personal parties. That's his job, that's what Satan thrives on, is creating division, creating dissension, or at least accentuating it and making it worse, or at least trying to set up the scenario so that people fall into the pit of conflict and dissension. And so that's why Satan spends his time with the full fury attacking Christians um, and also attacking Christian marriages and attacking the leadership at local churches. And that's where he spends most of his time because he can do the most damage against Christ there. So Satan uses conflict to it, and I was very specific. I didn't say Satan creates conflict. Satan doesn't always create, you know, we are bad enough and simple enough to create our own conflict, can't we? We, we do. So, I'm not gonna say Satan creates conflict. That's what Eve tried to do. Oh, the devil made me do it! And then Adam tried to blame somebody else. My wife, <clears throat> my wife made me do it. So, Satan uses conflict to attack the body of Christ. Sometimes he can help create the conflict. Uh, he uses conflict when he sees it. He can predict that he's very smart. He knows human behavior. He's, he knows human sin nature. He knows the past. He knows how he was successful in the past. He knows the precedents that were set. Satan, very sharp. That's why he can use it like a, just an amazing supernatural strategist to create conflict in the body of Christ. And he is good at it. That is his profession. He's an expert. So we've got to watch out for the devil. So conflict, when you're in conflict, ungodly conflict with somebody else as a Christian, you know what you're doing, you you and me, we are mimicking Satan. Really. And if we refuse to try to bring resolution to the conflict with other Christian parties, then we're actually being a tool of Satan. Isn't that sad? That some Christians can actually subject themselves to, be used as a tool of Satan to create division among Christians in the body. But we're all susceptible to it and vulnerable to it. That's what he does. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.22 there, I just put an excerpt, but uh, it hints at this, that in terms of Satan's involvement in conflict in the church, uh, Paul is reminding Timothy... As a pastor, as an elder, as an evangelist and leader in the churches there. Actually, and he's in Ephesus. And Ephesus had all kinds of problems and conflict anyway. And so that's why Paul put Timothy there to try to resolve ongoing conflict. And he says, Timothy, man, keep your priorities. Stay focused. Uh, don't get discouraged. Now flee from youthful lust. Pursue righteousness, faith, pursue love. It's going to be hard to do. You are in a church with some unlovable people. And Timothy, pursue peace. First Timothy two twenty two. Peace is talking about in interpersonal relationships. It's the opposite of conflict. Be at peace with the believers in your church in Ephesus that are hard to get along with. Be deliberate about it. Be active about it with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. But Timothy refuse conflict, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. They produce conflict. Don't talk about peripheral, tangential, gray area things that are just Fodder for the fire of needless conflict in the church. Undermining Christian relationships. Don't go there. Refuse it. Uh, verse 24. And by the way, Timothy, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Don't get engaged. Don't lock horns with people who want to argue and fight. Don't do that. It's easy to do sometimes. So the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. And when you are wronged by others in conflict because of their sin, and you got to be patient. You've got to let God try to work this out in His time. And Satan, uh, by the way, goes on and talks about how, verse 26, and when there is conflict and people who are wrong in the conflict situation, they may come to their senses if you approach it the right way, manage conflict the right way, and escape from the snare of the devil who helped get them into this conflict. Verse 26. So Satan will try to use conflict to destroy the unity in the body of Christ. So all Christians, number one, all Christians and all churches will have conflict. Number two, be aware that Satan uses conflict to attack the body of Christ. Number three, not only Satan uses conflict, God uses conflict. Wow, what a huge contrast. That's kind of profound. Satan will use conflict. God will use conflict. How does God use conflict? God uses conflict to expose error. And reveal truth. This is a great verse. Uh, First. I want to look at it. First Corinthians 11. Now if I were to ask you. uh, On a New Testament survey quiz. Okay which church in the New Testament. Had the most problems. Relationally. And they fought all the time. And they squabbled. And they argued. And they had dissensions and factions. And they couldn't get along. And everybody would say. The Corinthians. Because that's the, the correct answer. And that's why Paul had to write, what, four or five letters to Corinthians, two of which ended up in the New Testament. Man, they were high maintenance. Paul planted that church, by the way, pastored there for a year and a half. And they were still full of conflict in their personal relationships. And so Paul, he, in, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's just dealing with issue after issue. Chapter 1, conflict. Chapter 2, conflict. Chapter 3, conflict. Chapter 4, conflict. And he gets all the way up. Chapter 10, conflict. And then chapter 11, we're still dealing with conflict. And he says this amazing statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, dealing with the conflict among the Corinthian Christians in the Christian church. He says, uh, starting at verse 18. Uh, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, when you guys gather together on the Lord's Day on Sunday, or you have some church meeting, boy, I wish it was all glorious and everybody was happy and Bubbly and hugging each other and kissing each other and with the kiss of peace and et cetera, et cetera That is not what's going on To paul's chagrin. Well, what's going on for in the first place when you come together as a church? I hear that divisions exist factions exist among you you're clicky you are divisive you're fighting you're arguing You're not getting along. You're a horrible testimony. You're not forgiving each other. You're not pursuing peace in a biblical manner It's making my ears ring It's making my stomach sick as your pastor to be here, This is your testimony to the world. I'm hearing about it from abroad. That's all I hear about you guys. That was their reputation. How sad is that? Uh, so I hear the divisions that exist among you. And, a part, and Paul says, you know what? I believe it. I used to be your pastor. I was there for a year and a half. I know. I know the personalities as he's closing his eyes, envisioning who's involved. Man, I believe it. I know where you guys came from. I know. Yeah, I was there when I was there. Wow. Verse 19. And here's the amazing statement. For there must be factions among you. There must be divisions among you. You know what that means? It is necessary that there are divisions and conflicts in the church and it is necessary that there is conflict among Christians. Isn't that amazing? Paul is a realist. He was inspired by the Spirit of God when he wrote this. This is truth. This is a reality check about conflict in the church and among Christians. The goal is not to be conflict-free. The goal is to welcome conflict when you see it in the church and you come to this conclusion or even this before you even make your diagnosis. Wow, here's another opportunity where God is going to do something. God uses conflict. As a matter of fact, God uses conflict to his glorious ends and Paul tells us what it is. Well, there must be factions in the church. There must be divisions among Christians in order that for the purpose of why in the world would God want division or use division in the church with a bunch of sinful people? Here is the answer why. In order that for the purpose of So we have conflict in our church and then we will continue to have conflicts in our church until we go to be with Jesus in order that those who are approved, those who are legit, those who are speaking, walking in truth with humility and obedience to God, those who are in the right, those who are not wrong, those who are not sinful in the conflict, the legitimate ones will be approved. They will be approved. So you got this conflict. You're at a distance. You don't know what's going on in the conflict. All you know is Christian party number one is fighting with Christian party number two. And you're an outsider and all you think is, oh, that's too bad that those Christians are fighting. When in reality, no, go beneath the surface. you got one party that's wrong and one party that is right. And this needs to be resolved. And God needs to expose it so all can see the truth. That's what Paul is saying here. In order that those who are approved may have become evident, revealed, clearly seen by all. That's what God does. That's how God uses conflict in the church. That's how He uses conflict. So say you have conflict at the leadership level among the pastors or the elders or whatever, or the deacons or whatever in a church, which happens all the time. You don't run away from it. You embrace it. You pray and you seek a, bur- a biblical methodology of addressing it. And you know the promise from Scripture is if it's dealt with in the right way over time, it is going to reveal and it will be clear to all who is in the right and who is in the wrong, who was sinful and who was and prideful and who was humble. And it will be, that's what that word revealed means. The curtain will be pulled back as the dust settles and the truth will become readily apparent to all. That's how God uses conflict in the church. It's an amazing thing. And I I was thinking about that this week. Thinking, okay, I've been at, you know, five or six churches over the course of 20 plus years and there was conflict in every single one of them. And there was, man, there was heated conflict in every single church. And as the years go by, for me, it gets clearer and clearer to be able to interpret why that conflict happened. It's amazing, which is fulfilling this truth. That God is making evident for all to see the truth in the midst of a conflict. Uh, John says the same thing in First John two nineteen, where he's talking about people who were creating conflict in the local church, and eventually uh, one of the party one party ends up leaving. Huh? And they leave. Ang- you know how people can do that? I'm angry. Huh? I'm out of here. I didn't get in my way. I'm out of here. I'm gone. You guys are losers, or whatever it is. First John two nineteen. that's kind of the context. And then John, the apostle says, you know what? At this church in Ephesus that's been here for decades and pastored by three different apostles, we've got conflict. There will always be conflict. And over the decades, we have seen people come, join the church, and go. Come, join the church, go. Come, lead, teach the church, and go. And part of the answer, the significant answer, John says, you know why that happens? Here's why that happens. They went out from us. They left their church. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. There was not a kindred spirit there. We thought we were on the same page, but as time went on, we realized we aren't on the same page in significant matters. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. See, they would have enjoyed the intimacy of the fellowship of their brothers and sisters in that local church because of the relationships they built. It's always kind of interesting when you see somebody leave the church, what kind of relationships did they leave in its wake? What kind of depth and intimacy did they have to the relationships that they left behind? That is indicative many times of the conflict. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, they left, so that it would be shown, so that it would be revealed, same concept Paul says, that they are not of us. They are not of us. Uh, So that's what John says. This is at the end of his ministry. So he, John's saying this with the perspective that he's had for four-plus decades of seeing this kind of conflict, and it's a biblical truth, but it accentuates how God uses... Conflict. And so, as elders of the church, we have to welcome conflict in the church. And we have to address it and deal with it in a biblical manner, knowing and trusting God. Okay, God, you are going to reveal uh, truth and error in this process. So, uh, after number three, that God uses conflict, let's go to number four. So, this is uh, number four, is scripture clearly addresses how to manage conflict. And so, on number four, this is just a reminder for all of us. This is a basic reminder of Matthew 18 of how to manage conflict and interpersonal relationships and really doing maintenance to relationships. And by the word maintenance, I'm not minimizing the conflict. By maintenance, I'm talking about ongoing regular things that need to be done to cultivate and nurture a relationship with people that you have on a regular ongoing basis. That it's, it's normative, happens all the time. And this usually happens with people you're close to, usually family members, marriage relationship, uh, those who are close in the local church. Um, So Scripture clearly addresses how to manage conflict. And so we can personalize, for all of us, points A through E. Because I asked you earlier, do you have conflict with anybody in your life right now? And I know we all could probably say, yeah. Well, are we dealing with it in a biblical manner? Well, here's Jesus' recommendation of how to do it. We'll be B through E specifically. Before we get to that, what do we do uh, before going to deal with and grab it by the horns and manage conflict in our relationships uh first thing we need to do is we need to get right before god so that's why uh step number one in dealing with conflict in your life especially among the brethren is letter a and that is pray pray for god's wisdom and leading pray for god's wisdom and got to start there we all do because we're in a conflict we're always right aren't we <laughs> we are they're wrong i'm right <clears throat> well not necessarily Sometimes we have a blind spot. Sometimes we lack information. Sometimes we are making a presumptuous wrong conclusion ahead of time. Sometimes uh, we're not seeing our own sin. And we need God to intervene to reveal our blind spot, to soften our heart, to prepare us for resolution, for wanting us to desire resolution and making peace with the enemy. And we got to Pray. Pray for God's wisdom, not just his wisdom, but also leading in going about and doing the right thing. I want to read Galatians. Um, this is great. Galatians 6. In the midst of sin or conflict uh, among with another brother or sister in the Lord, it says, uh, brethren, even if a man is caught in a trespass, say somebody sinned against you and now there's conflict. This could apply to conflict. You who are spiritual, okay, say you aren't in the wrong and you got a conflict with somebody in the church restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness so you, you want to go and make it right with that person but before you do look to yourself look to yourself lest you be tempted and fall into sin in the midst of that conflict. what does that mean to look to yourself evaluate yourself and the only way we can possibly evaluate yourself is in prayer to god god search me with your spirit said david in the psalms Reveal known and unknown sins. God, show me my weak spots and my blind spots. So we've got to pray. It's self-evaluation. Look in the mirror and see if you've got that two by four stuck in your eye and ask God to help you pull it out before you go try to take out the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. So that is talking about prayerful reflection before uh, engaging with another Christian. And it could be, the sin could be conflict. So... Uh, The first thing you need to do is pray. So to ask you, do you have a conflict with somebody in your life right now? How much prayer have you given it? How much have you been bathing it in prayer? Your own heart, your own humility, your own teachability, my own heart, my own humility, and also praying on behalf of that other person, praying for their best if they're a Christian and that God would soften their heart. and that They would want the same result that you do, which God wants, which is resolution and peace, right? So you need to be praying about it. So that's the first thing you do. Then after we pray about it, let's go to Matthew 18. Here's how we deal with ongoing conflict in relationships Matthew 18:15 to 17 Some people call this or I guess the popular adage for this passage would be the, the discipline process the dis- step one step two step three step four but actually the one that get exercised the most is just the first step and that's just one on one so I don't really call it the discipline process as much as conflict resolution Because most times if you do it right, it's getting resolved at that first level and it doesn't go to step two. So it is the church discipline passage, but it's also a conflict management and resolution passage. And by the way, it came from Jesus himself. From Jesus himself. And so it has to go in this priority. It's given in a priority fashion. There's a chronology. It must be done in this order. You can't skip the steps unless you have special circumstances. There are special circumstances for conflict in the church. A public sin... A public offense that affects the whole body requires an immediate public rebuke. First Corinthians. Or the factious man after second and third warning bypasses this process of interpersonal relationships. But for the most part, this is where most of us live day to day as we're rubbing shoulders with family members and church people and colleagues at work. So first thing we do when we have a conflict with somebody is be Jesus said, go. Go to the person privately. It's huge. Go, that's the command. Go to that person and go privately. It's one-on-one. That's where you start. I have a conflict with this person. I think I have a conflict with this person. I think this person has a problem with me. Well, there you go. Now you know what to do. Jesus said go. Jesus said go. Keep your finger in Matthew 18 and flip back to Matthew 5 real quick where Jesus talks about uh, conflict and personal relationships there. Starting at verse 23. Matthew 5, he talks about anger in the heart. Anger in the heart, anger in the heart, very bad. If you have anger in your heart towards somebody... By the way, anger in your heart is usually directed at a person. If you have anger towards somebody, you're going to have conflict. That's why we have verse 23 of Matthew 5. If, therefore, you are presenting your offering at the altar... If you are being religious, you're going to church, you're being a Christian, you're trying to worship God, and there, while you're worshiping God, and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Oh, you realize, oh... They they have an issue with me. They are upset with me. I think they're mad at me. They have the problem. I don't have the problem. They have. I think they have the problem. Then Jesus says in verse 24, then leave your offering there before the altar and go. Go, go, go. Go your way. Go immediately. Go now. Go before the devil has an opportunity. Go and make friends quickly is what he says. Make friends quickly with your enemy. Go, go, go. Well, it's interesting. If you go back to Matthew 18 and he says, if somebody sinned against you, you're offended. That scenario, that person was offended at you. Matthew 18, you are offended at that person. The onus is still on you. Whether you're the offender or not, the onus is on you if you're knowledgeable of it to go. They they offended me. I need to go. That's Matthew 18. Verse 15, if your brother sins, go, 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 go and reprove. Isn't that interesting? So you got two parties over here. They are in conflict, whether it's this person is mad at this person and this person knows that this person is mad at them, so this person is responsible, according to Matthew 5, to go to this person. Then Matthew 18 says that if this person is, uh, same thing, if they know that they're, or no, they have a sin issue against this person and they know they have a sin issue, they need to go and confront. So the imagery, if you take Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 together, is you have two Christians going towards each other and they meet where? In the middle to kiss and hug and make up. Isn't that amazing? That is the wisdom of Jesus in being a peacemaker. Everybody's responsible. The onus is on both parties to go. You ever known people to just sit around and give the silent treatment hmm, and they clam up. I'm not going to say sorry till they say sorry. I'm not going there till they come here and come crawling on their knees. Oh, really, Christian? Wow. If you know there's conflict according to Jesus, your master and Lord, you need to go. That's what it says. Real simple go to the person and by the way and you do it privately this is beautiful this is our savior who is uh, interested in protecting the reputation of every single one of us Says, so if your brother sins go and reprove him in private privately one-on-one you don't go and announce it you don't Go tell your mother. You don't go tell all of your friends. You don't put it in Facebook. You don't blah, blah, blah and talk about it all over the place. You don't go tattle to your pastor and the elders. You go. You go to that person. You go privately before God, all prayed up, and you pray that the Spirit of God brings resolution, and poof, it is over if there is peace. It is gone. It is forgotten as far as the East is from the West. Nobody needs to know about it. Your reputation is protected by the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. That is the goal. Because Jesus cares for us so that's why we do it in private. If you have an issue with someone. So that's uh, the first step. Or the second step. So pray. Ask God to help you. The second step is go privately to that person that you think has a conflict with you or they have sinned against you and you go towards them proactively and, you're do- and you speak the truth in love, says Ephesians. Speaking means to verbalize it as opposed to clamming up, giving the silent treatment, running away, isolating yourself, refusing to talk. You know that somebody who refuses to talk and meet with the other party in a conflict is violating this command. They don't want resolution. They don't want God to be honored. They're doing the exact opposite of what Jesus calls us to do. It is go and speak the truth in love and pursue peace and unity. And somebody who's going the opposite direction is indicative of their heart attitude. Just the opposite of what Jesus requires. So we pray, we go and we talk to that person privately and we try to work it out. And sometimes you'll realize, oh, it was just a communication issue. Praise God. Or maybe somebody's humble and they get further information and they apologize and they ask for forgiveness and there's peace. Then it is done. If your brother has listened to you, it's done. It is resolved. And Christ is pleased. God is glorified. And probably your relationship will be strengthened. But sometimes you go to that person and they don 't listen, they don 't want peace, uh, they refuse you, they stick your arm, their arm in your face, and they say, "No, I will have nothing of this then that 's the next step. If you go privately and it doesn 't work after prayerful consideration in a timely manner, then Jesus says, "See if your brother does not listen, bring one or two others with you and that 's Matthew fifteen or matthew eighteen sixteen But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every act may be confirmed and this is a quote from deuteronomy 19 this is actually a legal requirement before god before you're telling all your friends bad-mouthing some other christian behind their back have you gone to them privately have you gone to them with a prayerful attitude did you talk to them were you humble did you listen did you pursue peace Yes, I did all that, and they won't listen. Okay, now, then you get one or two trustworthy, wise, godly, insightful other Christians to be a part of this mediating process. And this is the next circle. It's still a small circle because it's a maximum of maybe four people that are involved at this point. It's not announced to the whole church. Still, reputations are being protected by the grace of God and the intention of Jesus. So this would be step two in the church uh, discipline process. And it's a legal procedure, according to Deuteronomy 19. And you take one or two with you. The three of you you go talk to. You go confront the hardened believer that wasn't listening. Many times God will use this to bring great accountability and soften the heart of a hardened believer. And many times they'll just melt in conviction and repentance right there and say, oh man, I'm sorry, I blew it. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I've seen that happen time and time again at step 2. It's a beautiful thing when God works that way. And Jesus will honor his word if you do it this way. Some people are afraid to do this procedure and this process. I don't want to do Matthew 18. I know what it says. Step one, step two, blah, blah, blah. I've seen it over the years. People not willing to do that. Why don't Christians do this process? It's so clearly delineated. There's a lot of reasons. Sometimes out of ignorance. They don't know the process. Sometimes out of fear and lack of courage. Sometimes lack of faith. They don't think it will work. I'm sitting down many times. Over the years with people I've counseled them. Oh, you've got a conflict with your sister. Oh, family member, somebody at church. Then you need to go. You know what Matthew 18 says? Yeah, I know what it says. Have you talked to them? No, I haven't. Why not? They won't what? They won't listen. That's that's their reason. It doesn't matter if they don't listen. Who cares? You still do it anyway. Jesus said you need to do the right thing. And yes, it's very possible they won't listen. And guess what? Jesus is so wise, so knowing, and so caring. He has a solution. If they don't listen, if they don't listen. You go to the next step. So that's how it advances to the next step of accountability. If they don't listen, so saying they won't listen is not an excuse to refrain from doing this. We need to. Uh, so if your brother doesn't listen, you take one or two, and then many times God. Will re- if if your brother does listen to the two or three of you, then you forgive each other. It is forgiven. It is forgotten. It's never brought up again. You move on. Jesus is pleased, God is praised, and once again, maybe your relationship is stronger than it ever was before. That's what forgiven conflict can do. Uh, so say the two or three of you go, they don't listen, they harden their heart, they say, no, nope, I refuse to listen. Then Jesus escalates the accountability. That's the next step. Uh, D, if the brother does not listen, to the two or three of you, then you tell it to the church. You tell it to the church leadership at a minimum. You start with the elders and pastors and the deacons and and then the members. This is the full court press that God uses to zoom in on the sinner, on the hardened one who refused to repent and seek peace. And God gives us freedom on how to implement that in the local church. But again, this is a formal procedure, telling it to the authorities in the local church. And then everybody needs to strategically be on the same page and pursue that person who's not listening to bring about repentance that will uh, bring peace in that relationship. So that's D. Well, they might not listen. Yeah, that's true. Even if the whole church confronts them. I've been in that situation. This is rare, but I've been in that situation. I've seen... People respond to a church rebuke and I've seen some harden themselves even more. They don't listen. And Jesus has a solution for that if they don't listen. That's letter E. If the brother or sister in Christ doesn't listen even to the entire church and their church leadership confronting them in the full court press, then treat them like an unbeliever. Why? Because they're not acting like a believer. What is basic? A basic Christian virtue is forgiveness. A basic Christian virtue is seeking peace and unity with fellow believers. <laughs> if you've gone through all this process, weeks and months and months and months and, of deliberations in this very tedious biblical process, and they've been confronted three and four and five times and they're still hard-hearted, they are revealing their heart. They are Whether they are a Christian or not, only God knows, but they sure are acting like an unbeliever. And that's why... Basically, Jesus says, you know what? They're not acting like a Christian, so don't treat them like one. So, in other words, you engage with them in a new way. You don't welcome them in fellowship. You don't assume they're a Christian. You assume just the opposite. You start praying for their salvation. Not only do they have a problem with you and others in the church, they have a problem with God. That's the problem. That's their hardened heart. And so that's why Jesus uses the terminology that He does. A tax gatherer, treat them like a heathen, somebody who's not saved. And that starts with the prayer of the conviction of salvation that they can just see straight in terms of their relationship with God. They need to get right with God first. And I've even been through that step in church discipline formally at a couple churches, and I've seen God use it to bring somebody like that to repentance. I've seen a couple of things. I've seen a Christian who was so hardened they were a Christian and they just finally repented and realized, wow, I have been an idiot and a hard-headed, stubborn fool for the last seven months. Please forgive me. That happened at one church. We embraced that brother. We forgive you. Praise God. I've also seen this done where the person never came around. And then as the years went by, they defected more and more from the Christian faith and the Christian family, and the trajectory didn't look good, and still, here decades go by, and their nature becomes revealed more and more as time goes by. Time will reveal this, someone like that. So the 20 years from now, they're not even going to church, they don't even call themselves a Christian? Oh, no wonder they were not saved. That's why they couldn't be recouped at the time. So that is the discipline process and the management process. By the way, what is Jesus' goal through this Matthew 18 thing? Well, it's two things. What is Jesus trying to do through Matthew 18? He's trying to get two parties in conflict to first communicate to each other. That's what, he just wants them to talk. That's where it's gotta start. It's really that simple. People who are in conflict, what do they need to do? They need to talk. If you are married, embrace that principle. And you are having conflict with your spouse, what do you need to do if you're in conflict? Well, at some point we need to talk. You can't hide in the bathroom forever. Right? Or run away from your spouse forever. To obey Jesus, you got to get together and talk face-to-face. Talk, communicate. That's goal number one. And the second goal Jesus has is to bring about resolution, harmony, peace, friendship. That is a blessed thing. That is the goal in Jesus's process. And with that, we go to number five. In Matthew 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, to all of the disciples there are listening, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who have a goal as their life, who profess to love God, to be peacemakers in every relationship they have everywhere they go. And they are blessed by God. If you are proactive and deliberate about being a peacemaker, getting along with others, resolving conflict biblically, Jesus smiles down on you because you're a peacemaker. And you're able to do it because you have the Spirit of God in you who produces supernatural love, patience, and peace in your heart, even for difficult people. And you're blessed by God if you're a peacemaker. If you are not given over to being a peacemaker and you hold on to grudges and you don't have forgiveness and you have a short fuse, you aren't, you aren't a blessed peacemaker. You're, you're a cursed troublemaker. Really. It's the opposite of a peacemaker. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Paul said the same thing in Romans 12, insofar as it depends upon you and me, be at peace with all men. We are obligated to do that as Christians. Keep short accounts. Make friends quickly. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Making peace quickly pleases God. I want to close with this. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, sorry, Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 4. Remember early on in Paul's ministry, he got mad at Barnabas because he was so mad at John Mark and they couldn't get it along and they couldn't restore that and they couldn't resolve the issue and they parted company and Paul went on his merry way and he went on four missionary trips and he had all these other disciples he was working with and decades, years went by and there's a lot of silence about what Paul thought of John Mark and if they ever got back together again and if he just wrote him off as not even being a Christian... Well, at the end of Paul's life, in his last epistle, maybe in the last year of his life, 20, almost 30 years later, we get this beautiful little glimpse of what God did in Paul's heart towards that knucklehead John Mark who abandoned him on their missionary journey. And it also shows amazing growth and maturity on the part of John Mark and the Spirit of God who worked on the hearts of these men. And here's Timothy, uh, Paul, who was once mad at John Mark, said, I have nothing to do with the guy. Just before he went to heaven, Paul said, in closing his letter, writing to Timothy, By the way, Timothy, say hi to this guy, and beware of this guy, and tell Titus I said hi, and boy, it's kind of lonely, I'm all by myself. Verse 11, But and only Luke is with me, the doctor. Oh, and by the way, pick up Mark, pick up John Mark, and bring him with you. I want to see him again. John Mark, this guy that Paul used to be mad at. Pick up John Mark, bring him with you, get this, for he is useful to me. Isn't that amazing? That's what God can do. God can resolve uh, the worst kind of breaches in relationships among people. If we just pray, believe, follow His procedure, let time go, and see what God does. The greatest peacemaker in the world is God Almighty and Jesus the Savior, right? Because at one time we were enemies of God holding our fist in our unforgiven sin. And God initiated peace with us by giving us the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And when we embraced Christ as Savior, and when we believed in the fullness of the gospel, it says God made peace with us. That's reconciliation. That's a beautiful picture. It all starts with what God has done on our behalf through Christ. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for the reality of the importance of conflict resolution pursuing peace with the brethren, pursuing forgiveness, obedience to the Spirit of God, obedience to what You've outlined in Scripture. God, thank You for, despite the fact that we were enemies, we hated You. You loved us. And You initiated peace with us through the blessed life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now You call us friends. God help us replicate that in our own personal relationships, especially among the brethren. We would always pursue peace and be peacemakers and as a result be blessed by you. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650 650-